Good evening, everyone. Welcome to M Pavilion. Thank you so much for coming down in this, uh, what looks like the beginning of a storm, but I'm sure it will be fine. Uh, my name is Sarah Savage. I'm a producer at M Pavilion. And um, before we get started, I just wanted to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight. Um, we are on the land of the Yalukut Willem, which are part of the Bunwurrung, uh, one of the main, one of the five major language groups of the Kulin Nation. And we pay our respects to their land to their elders, past, present and to the future, and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. We're going to be talking about some really interesting stuff tonight. After the poll, what happens next for marriage equality is the theme for the evening. I'm not going to tell you too much about the event. I'm going to hand over to ABC broadcaster and commentator Sally Warhaft, and she's going to tell you all about the event and the speakers we're about to hear from. Please give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Um, I hate to start with a correction, but this will be going in the archives. I'm not an ABC broadcaster. I am a freelance broadcaster. I think the ABC would be a bit cross if they thought I was getting around uh, saying that. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, though, uh, this evening to host this event with a superb panel, Um, particularly the timing. I think everybody's had just a little bit of time to reflect on the result Uh, and to start to think about what the future might hold. And uh, so our esteemed panel, we have uh, Dennis Altman, who is Emeritus Professor and Professorial Fellow in the Institute for Human Security at La Trobe University, and the author of, I think, 13 books, countless essays and articles, and his book, of course, um, Homosexual Oppression and Liberation, which was published in 1972, continues to be reprinted and reprinted and uh, read all over the world. Ro Allen is the Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality for the Victorian Government. Ro's been a member of three Victorian Government LGBTI ministerial advisory groups and as founding CEO of Uniting Care Cutting Edge, Roe established Victoria's first rural support group for young LGBTI people. And uh, among the many other accolades that I read about uh, uh, for uh, Roe, Roe was gonged as Hero of the Year at the 2017 Australian LGBTI Awards. Imam Nurwasami is based in Melbourne. He obtained his religious qualifications in Egypt, uh, memorising the Quran as a teenager. One of the very few people uh, to have done that as part of his qualifications. Nur is also the founder of Mahaba Inc., which is an organisation focusing on the welfare of LGBTIQ Muslims. So please give them a big welcome. Um, I don't uh, want the panel to spend too much time dwelling on what has happened because this is about looking into the future. Uh, But I think before we do get into that, I'd like them each uh, just to give us their reflections on the survey, uh, both the process of the campaign and the result. And, Ro, we might start with you. Thanks. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land and pay my respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. Look, it was a really long three months. Uh, I think that's what my reflection is. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's time. We, we, we all are pretty exhausted, but we really need, do need to start the healing process. There was a lot of pain 
uh, LGBTI community and our allies in this process. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not over. People think it's done and dusted and obviously we're still going and uh, I think the fight for legislation and uh, amendments and a possible religious uh, review next year, it's all just, you know, there's not a lot of time to rest. No. How did you, uh, well, how did you feel about the result and the way the survey was carried out? I thought it was a waste of money, but ultimately I was happy with the result. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I was very, um, I was thinking about the feeling of young LGBT Muslim youth in their homes finding out the results on the TV screens, sitting with their parents who are, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I was very happy. I felt very proud to be um, Melbourneian on that day. Yes. Dennis. I, I mean, obviously, I agree with both Ro and Noor. Um, I wasn't so worried about the money because I think that it is a bad argument to say we shouldn't spend money on a democratic process. I think the problem is it wasn't a particularly good process. And I think that the real strain was on human and emotional resources more than on financial resources. But I also take some comfort from what I think came out of the campaign, which is a real creation of bonding and community among a lot of people who, for the first time in their lives, were actually aware that, you know, using an old slogan that we used to use a lot, the personal is political. And it strikes me that quite unintentionally, because this whole thing was basically a device to paper over cracks within the governing parties, quite unintentionally, they actually created the possibilities for bringing together a lot of people, mobilising a lot of people and creating a new sort of political energy. So at that point... I think there are some optimistic things to be taken out of what was, nonetheless, a pretty awful process. You've seen social movements over a few decades, Dennis. Uh, what, um, what did you recognise, if anything, from those movements in what happened around this survey? And what also was really different? Look, I think what was different... I mean, obviously, one thinks back to the early days of a queer movement in Australia, which is parallel with the feminist movement, the beginning of an environmental movement, what was different, I think, was the sheer scale. And what I think was really interesting was that the Yes campaign could get 50,000 people out onto the streets. The No campaign, as far as I know, had no public demonstrations and very few open meetings. Um, but I think that, in that sense... What was really different was the huge amount of popular support for the Yes campaign. And for me, that was actually quite extraordinary. We had, after all, the leaders of every significant political party, every state premier, and I think the turning point came that weekend in September when the two major football finals took place. I think after that, the Noes had had it. There was no way that the No campaign could win against the two leading football codes basically coming out and saying, look, enough already, of course, no, let's get this thing done. My cynical view is that when it came to it, most Australians looked at the bizarre 
family feud going on within Tony Abbott's family and thought, well, if it's that important, why on earth can't his sister get married? Why doesn't Tony just disappear and let it happen? Um, Ro, can you tell us a bit about that movement on the ground, um, things that might surprise us about the way it was... Like, how organised was it? Well, I think it, I think it had had a fair bit of work to get organised. So if you remember, we fought off the first plebiscite and so we organised ourselves to be ready for that if we had to and then we fought off the second one and so the skeleton of the... Anyway, I only talk Victorian. Of the Victorian arm uh, was ready to go and um, so we pressed the button. I think when we pressed the button, I don't think anybody was really aware of how many people were going to come forward... And so the Victorian Trades Hall really coordinated it. And we haven't got the final numbers yet. Obviously, we know nearly 100,000 people enrolled to vote, mostly young people. Uh, but we had people door knocking and telephone calling that had never done any campaigning before in their life. So this process has created social justice campaigners, which hopefully we'll be able to use for other LGBTI and Manus Island, any other thing down the track. And we've taught people actually how to campaign. And I think the, uh, the amount of allies that have come forward, we didn't even know were allies. You know, progressive churches and people, uh, corporates, you know, sports clubs, as Dennis has said, you know. And I think, um, I think Joy read out those in, the, in a sports show all the sports clubs from basketball to cricket Victoria to, you know, there's like 12 or 15 Victorian codes that had supported marriage equality. I'd missed most of it, you know. There were so many people coming out supporting it. It was like, how do you crack open the space to get your, your bit of support out there? And I think all of those... But the people in cricket would have seen those cricket, Victoria, and the people that follow football would have seen that. And so I think it was such a diverse way of campaigning, which is so... I mean, it, it's why Victoria, I believe, was the highest state, you know, putting aside the ACT that's not a state. And I can say this because I'm the Victorian Commissioner, but... 65%, you know, because we know how to do campaigning, we know how to, to, to break the facts in fact mix. And, and, and I, you know, the no campaign really got jumped on pretty quickly, uh, and not, not just in Melbourne. You know, I travelled right around rural Victoria during, during those three months. And you may not have seen, you know, so many yes posters like Smith Street down in Bansdale, but there was little activist groups running and little forums. And, it, you know, that's, that's how we did it, door-to-door, community conversations, table conversations, and that's how the campaign works. Um, it's moved on pretty quickly, of course, and now we're in the middle of parliamentary debate uh, in the Senate. Malcolm Turnbull is determined to get this through uh, by Christmas, and he, of course, has announced a review, I think, just yesterday uh, into uh, religious freedoms, appointing Philip Ruddick to conduct that review to report by the 31st of March next year, which is a kind of very strange thing he's done politically uh, to just set himself up for three months of utter turmoil to cloud the beginning of a, a new year. Um, but that aside, um, uh, Noor, Imam Noor, uh, what does religious freedom mean in, in this political context? context of politics? Of the debate religion? that's going to, going to go on now for another four and a half months. You know, I do not have confidence or trust in politicians. I normally say 
they're like sperm. One in a million turns out to be human. Um, and I'm yet to find that human. Um, and I, as I was saying to you, Sally, I believe somehow I could be wrong. Maybe they will delay it. Too. I could be wrong. You, you, you must tell me, Dennis. I could be wrong. But there's I will tell you. I think you are wrong, but I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> but they delayed one week, and you know, they, there is some distraction. And once, if you saw the drum keep, story. Keep your mic nice and close. So the drum story, there was a drum story um, last week. Once religious, we are distracting, we spent $100 million on an issue address the issue. Once you put um, religious freedom, we're distracting to address, you know, from the issue at hand. Um, re- religious institutions have had religious freedoms for a long time. And I think if they want to have the audacity, religious institutions particularly, to talk about religious freedoms, pay taxes. Pay taxes. Otherwise, sush away. You know? I think. Um, but, you know, these are just distractions, distractions from the top cat. And I think, and I'm, you know, I'm sitting between two giants and, you know, I'm, I'm yet to learn. Yes, yes. I think a lot of people well, well, would I, disagree I just, with that. Yeah. <laughs> Dennis, no, no, I, go I, on. I, look, I, I agree with what you said, Sally. I think it's perfectly clear that Turnbull desperately wants to get this. He wants to get it out of the way. Um, and... I think it's very obvious this move to have an inquiry into religious freedom is essentially something that pays off, buys out uh, a number of the right-wing liberals. Um, I'm concerned about it, not because I think it's going to have a huge impact on the changes to marriage, but because I think the idea that somehow religious freedom is imperiled strikes me as quite bizarre. Now, unlike um, both Roe and Noor, I have no religious background at all. I'm deeply secular. Um, in my, from the way I see it, Australia already has extraordinary permissions for religious tyranny. Um, and the best example is the school chaplain program, which is government-funded, which is a system that employs largely people from fundamentalist Christian backgrounds to go into, into state schools, despite the idea that the state school system is secular and has no religious overtones. We also have, and Rose certainly can explain this much better than I can, we have a number of provisions in anti-discrimination laws across the states that quite specifically allow religious institutions to discriminate. And most recently, I think in the last few days, a teacher at a Baptist school in WA was dismissed, not for anything he'd done as a teacher, not for any misbehaviour in the school, but purely because students had, dis- had seen him at a social event with his partner, and his partner was male. So the idea that somehow religious freedom is imperiled strikes me as absolutely bizarre. What is imperiled is actually our freedom from religion rather than the freedom of those to be religious. Mm. I'm welcoming the, the review, to be honest, because we, as, as Dennis has outlined, in, in Victoria we have religious exemption as well. And the average parent that sends their kids to school, Catholic school or independent school or state school, wouldn't actually know that if you are a gardener at a, a Catholic, or I shouldn't say Catholic, a religious school 
in, uh, in Victoria. Uh, if you're at Gardner, you can be fired for being gay or lesbian, bisexual, trans. And most people wouldn't know that. Most people go, oh, no, surely not. Surely not. But there it is. Now, not all those schools choose to use that exemption, but it's there. So I think, you know, let's, let's talk about it. Let's have that discussion. Let people understand what churches and church organisations are allowed to do. And then think about the amount of state government money that goes to some of these organisations and whether, you know, I think about that teacher uh, and that's, that's tragedy. But this will certainly ignite that conversation. Just as, just as Rosie Batty's story ignited family violence, that story will ignite this discussion uh, and probably fire up the teachers' union. You don't want to get them on the wrong side. And, you know, and they've got their rights, but this is one of their own. And, so, and, and you'll see a number and number of teachers that are in the closet, uh, which is just terrible, fe- fearing for their jobs. Can and not just teachers, of course, you know, in the, in the arguments during the uh, campaign, uh, jobs were threatened for uh, Catholic um, hospitals, nurses, doctors as well. So that's a fair portion of the population. Dennis, what sort of things then, given the provisions that already exist, would you expect to be coming up for debate? What are we going to have to endure uh, in terms of this discussion? Well, it's, it's very interesting because if you, if you listen to the people who keep talking about their religious freedoms are imperiled, what they're saying doesn't make sense. I mean, they keep saying, once this bill is passed, we won't be able to talk about our definition of marriage. Well, the problem is we've all been perfectly able to talk about our definition of marriage for a very long time at a time before the bill was changed. Um, they're also claiming that they're right to control what their children are taught will be somehow limited. And I think it would be really interesting to ask, you know, what's going on in some of the religious schools that already, as far as I can see, use the protection of religious teachings to further very real discrimination and bullying. I mean, let's remember that is, after all, why the Safe Schools Program was developed. The Safe Schools Program, despite the hysteria of some politicians, was not about teaching three-year-old girls to use dildos or four-year-old boys to wear makeup. This is all mythology. The Safe Schools Program was essentially providing resources to schools and teachers to deal with the reality that a lot of their kids are questioning their sexuality and their gender identity. And so the whole argument... I mean, if Rose writes, this inquiry actually does provide the opportunity to have a sensible discussion. And I do take comfort from the fact that one of the people on the inquiry is Frank Brennan. And Frank Brennan, I think, is a really important figure because he is a Jesuit priest who publicly supported the Yes campaign on the very simple ground, very simple argument that this is about secular law and what he believes as a Catholic should not be imposed upon people who don't share that belief. Now, my hope is that Frank will have enough influence on this committee. And no, if you're right, right. But I think it would be interesting, Noor, to hear what you think is going on in some of the religious schools, whereas I say I have real concerns. I think when we met the first time in Sydney, I mentioned to you, I think it's a catastrophe um, uh, that's waiting to happen. I graduated from a religious school, an Islamic school. Um, 
when it comes to religious protections, a lot of the pedophilic experiences happened in um, religious... They have this protection. And I have um, uh, had some discussions within um, some members of the police force who go to schools in Werribee, etc., the western suburbs, that, you know, the administration of the schools go and they say, okay, there's some children that are Googling stuff about ISIS. But because they have... The, so I think that lack of um, supervision with... Um, really, when I started the group that I started, um, Marhaba, it was because of a young girl, um, a young girl that was in an Islamic school that was being um, suppressed, oppressed by her own family, and the school was protecting that. And luckily, she had... Um, an Anglo, non-Muslim school psychologist that was there that reached out. So they have these protections. And I don't think um, they should... I mean, what more protection? What do they want to have more protections? To kill and to be exempt? Uh, Infallibility, I think, only belongs to the Almighty, in my opinion. Can you elaborate a bit more on what the conversations are within the leaders of these schools? what kind of further protections they might be seeking in this debate? Well, we have examples. I mean, recently, not recently, probably in the last couple of years, you would have heard of the principal of Al-Taqwa College in Warabi who said if girls run and play sports, they risk losing their virginity. And this is the principal of a school. Um, and many years ago, I, was, uh, I put the foundation stone of that um, school. And I would have said back then he was one of the most normal ones, but he went um, overseas. And these are the, um, the hierarchy within all the religious is- uh, Islamic schools around the country. So not only Victoria, Sydney, and I thank God that the government um, stopped funding to that um, King Fahad or whatever it was called in Sydney um, because they lie to the government and the government gives them funding and because we have our religious freedom. So what more freedoms? I mean, this is, I think, a distraction from a topic that... Um, and, you know, I have had friends that say to me, oh, no, you know, like what Dennis was saying, um, oh, they want to teach children sexual... I said, this is not the topic. It is not... Um, the topic is about educating your children. Because I remember many years ago when um, the concept of shame in the Muslim tradition is very, you know, big. And um, when you have a young girl, for example, or a young person, boy, who wants to question, you know, um, the issues of sexuality, their parent is supposed to be the first person that they go to to um, help them in that um, development of their life. But if the parent is an emotional cripple um, or a spiritual cripple, they go to the school. And if the teacher is somebody who is spiritually trying to indoctrinate them, it it interferes with that child's development. So I think um, our government needs to remove this. um, I don't believe there should be any religious protections to any educational schools at all. I don't believe that. It's very hard to imagine with the the current political culture and the current problems within the the government that we have now uh, that there won't be compromises to the right uh, on this issue. Um, So, Ro, Ro, you say you welcome it, um, but I I can't see this playing out where it will be a welcome outcome. I should clarify. No, I don't... 
But I don't think that the amendments... Well, if you look at the Patterson bill, it was, uh, I think people called it Patterson's curse. Uh, it didn't get to the floor. It didn't even get tabled. Um, the Dean Smith bill is a compromise. It's already a compromise. It already says that current uh, celebrants uh, can, in the first three, in the first three months, in the in the first three months, they can opt in to religious um, celebrant clause. It's a grandfather clause, so new uh, new celebrants can't. Um, so it's already a compromise, you know, um, and. I know that that doesn't, doesn't sit with all of the LGBTI community that say, absolutely, that's breaking a human rights. But, I, you know, part of my role is, is to find solutions and way forward. Uh, and I think, I think that bill is... It's already gone through, you know, the, the processes of a multi-party review uh, and it's come up with a bill. Not everybody loves it. Uh, we have to hold to that. That is already a compromise. We can't be, be accepting any more amendments further and further to the right... Uh, your left, my right. Um, we have to hold that. And I, I think the fact that we got 61.7% gives us the moral authority to hold that as well. So that's why I was just holding my breath on the ten past seven minutes past ten last Wednesday to make sure that it had a six in front of it. Because had it been a five, I think we would see a lot more amendments come in and a lot more compromise. And Australia's saying, no... Let's just do it. So I, I think we, I think we will, we will be able to guide through a whole lot of these. But you know, it's it's easy for me to say let's bring on another review. It'll be it'll be tricky. Um, but hopefully, you know, we. I mean, what else could they possibly get? The prime minister has already said we're not going to pass legislation that will remove remove human rights. And really, religious exemption is about human rights. So I don't see how they would be able to withdraw some of that stuff. And. You know, the, the arguments that we've heard, I mean, everyone's heard them about the baker. I'm yet to see this, this magical baker in Australia, you know, that's going to bake our birthday cakes but not our wedding cakes, you know. Now, where, where is that baker? They certainly... Wrote the yeah. ba- there is a baker. And candlestick there maker. There is a baker in the US. In the, is, well, that's yes, right. But it, there is an Australian baker. No, there are no Australian bakers. Well, I mean, there are many Australian bakers. And, in fact, there are Australian bakers desperate to bake wedding cakes that appears for gay couples. Um, but I was just going to say that because the baker keeps on being raised and people may not be aware there is currently a case working its way through the US legal system where it is claimed that by providing a wedding cake... And I think it... um, You may know the details. I think that the issue is that the wedding cake actually has on it two guys, or the image doesn't literally have two men on it... Um, Although that's quite attractive, yes. It has the... <laughs> I like that, but no, it has the image of two guys and it is claimed that this is infringing the baker's right to freedom of expression. And isn't it wonderful? You know, people like Cory Bernardi suddenly care about our freedom of expression. But, I, I mean, I think that, you know, I totally agree with Roe. I think that, you know, whatever we think of, of the current government, and I don't think we have to dwell too long because they may not be there too long... Um, they need to get this out of the way. And, and, you know, the thing that comforts me is the, the ABC had a poll of all sitting MPs before the poll results. And a number of the Conservatives were very clear that they would feel bound either by the national vote or by the vote in their electorate. 
And interestingly, of course, some of the ones who were hoping that the vote in their electorate would go for the no's actually have electorates who went for the yes. So I don't... I mean, I agree with Roe. I think this will go through. I think it will go through in the next two weeks with one scary proviso. There may not be a parliament within two weeks, depending on how many other people turn out to have dual citizenship. Um, And, you know, that does throw in something new and unexpected that... I don't think anyone, I don't think even Peter Dutton, whose cunning has almost no limits, could have predicted that. Um, I, I hear the bakers of New Zealand are furious about the yes result, which uh, that's the most I've heard about bakers, uh, the numbers of bakers at this point, because they're about to lose a lot of business. Um, I, let's move on to a sort of probably more complex, in a way, longer term, where um, what we've seen uh, occur over the past few months and, and, and longer um, is, is this great mobilisation, um, particularly young people, uh, but not only young people, about um, how you... Uh, will, will that just end? Was it, was it about this issue and it's, that's done? Um, or can that be... Uh, transformed into something bigger, or, or not necessarily bigger, but broader or different. Um, it, it's a difficult question to answer, but but what is your sense of that? Well, I don't think it was this. This last three months hasn't been just about marriage equality. Uh, the No campaign were really clear to make sure it was about kids in rainbow families and trans and gender diverse kids. So that's the next front. So we'll be working to pivot uh, at least the Victorian campaign into really clearly working for rainbow families and trans and gender diverse young people because the the no campaign, just like Dennis has said, uh, the yes campaign is really organised and and equipped. The no campaign is really cashed up, organised and equipped. And um, we're really clear and they've been really clear that they're going to turn their efforts... And they already did. You know, everyone saw they gave up on marriage... Equality, and they and they turn to the slippery slope. So, uh, we have to start doing that education campaign, and we're taking a little bit of time off, maybe a little bit of time off Christmas. But after that, we have to get right back into uh, into the work that needs to be done in that space because we can leave leave no one behind. No, do do you think that it can be sustained? The energy that we've observed in this campaign into into other areas. Um, on this topic, on the marriage equality, or in well, the the, the mobilisation, this sort of social movement, if you like, um, where does it where does it go next? Well, I think you know, um, it depends on uh, what comes to mind now. Is Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci's uh, co- um, saying? The, he said that the tragedy lies precisely in the fact that the old is dying. The old is dying, and the young cannot be born. And he says in this, um, he calls it interregnum. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. So as time progresses, there's always certain new issues that arise. And as time, I mean, 10 years ago, I couldn't have, I, I couldn't have talked about the things that I talk about now as an imam um, in the LGBT community because the platform wasn't there. Um, and I'm excited as the time progresses, you know, there is change happening. 
there's a shift globally, and not only within our country here, but globally there's a shift happening. Well, look, I think what, what is interesting, it seems, that the marriage campaign brought together people with very different political positions. So a number of the leaders of the campaign are deep conservatives. The only, I mean, let's be honest. For many of them, the only thing they care about is their right to get married. And I've at times been extremely cynical. I remain very cynical. I'm not going to name names. I think all of you know probably some of the people I have in mind. On the other hand, it also brought together a lot of people whose primary concern is equality and social justice. And one of the things that I found most uplifting going through the last few months was coming into contact with people who'd never really thought about politics. Suddenly they realise that, yes, actually what the state does directly impinges on their lives and their identities. Now, my great hope is that they will transfer this to both of the issues Rose talked about, but also to broader issues. And, of course, at the moment, we are currently going through this appalling scenes on Manus Island. And one of the things that has depressed me is the number of people in the marriage campaign who are very happy to talk about human rights, but their concept of human rights stops not just at the water's edge, but indeed at the edge of the marriage office. So my hope is that at least some of the people who've come into this campaign, who've started thinking about politics really for the first time, and I mean, I think, Bro, you referred, or Sally, one of you referred to the, I think it was about 100,000 new p people got themselves on the electoral rolls um, in a very short period of time. I mean, it was something like a month was allowed to do that. My great hope is that they will actually start thinking through the language of equality and rights and expand it. And, you know, let us hope that, therefore, it is the beginning of something new. Although, uh, you know, the problem, Norwood's saying, um, with the quote from Gramsci, is, of course, this is always true. The old is always dying, the new is always struggling to be born. I'm not sure when that would not be true of human history. I just say on, on statistics, uh, the old are always voting. So 90% of people over 60 voted. Uh, the ones that let us down were the 30 to 33-year-olds were the lowest level of voting. The 18 to 28-year-olds did find a post box and um, learn how to close an envelope and send it in. So, you know, we, that kind of information gives us a starting point to work out where, where our campaigners are and where, where, where the interest we need to do that, to do that work. Um, that 100,000 that uh, you just brought up, Dennis, they're mostly young. They're first-time voters. And uh, that's enough, of course, to have a real effect on both major parties uh, at the next election when these, when these kids actually realise that next time they have to vote. <laughs> uh, which brings me to my next thought about uh, this as somebody who's a great fan of the... Um, great supporter of the truly undemocratic compulsory voting we have in Australia. One of the things that really worried me about this campaign is that it would catch on and people would say, well, this was a great success, so why do we need compulsory voting anymore in Australia? Um, and I also connect that to the um, 
the debate that's going on, of course, was ended now in the Victorian Parliament about euthanasia. Um, and it was just very curious to me that these two things were going on at the same time, a voluntary vote on equal marriage and a parliamentary debate going on about euthanasia, which is where I personally thought it should have been taking place, um, uh, both of them, and what that means for our politics. Dennis, perhaps you're... Look, I don't think that anybody is going to start arguing for more polls run by the Bureau of Statistics. I mean, this was a bizarre event that really, you know, at one level, my feeling was this all boiled down to Julie Bishop. Julie Bishop sat in Cabinet and very carefully never sided with, it, with either side. Now, if you were a genuine Liberal, and I really wish we had, uh, you know, somebody from the Liberal Party sitting up here with us, the Liberal Party have always argued for the the supremacy of Parliament and the importance of the individual conscience. It is quite extraordinary that it is the Liberal Party who were willing to break both of those tenets to produce this really bizarre statistical um, event. But I don't think anybody wants to repeat it. And, I mean, I, I'm with you, Sally. I think the great advantage of compulsory voting is that it actually forces politicians to go beyond their base. And if you look at the US, what is so revealing about elections in the United States, where the turnout is very low, it's, it's what... It's in the 50s. Yes, the in the 50s. Month. And they think they're doing well. They get 55% of eligible voters and they congratulate themselves. Um, but what is, I think, striking, if you look at the US example and compare it to ours is that politicians basically mobilise their base. They don't care about other people. In fact, they discourage. If they're Republicans, they're very good at discouraging other people from voting. They have a whole set of very clever devices for doing it. So I, I, I'm with you. I think compulsory voting is essential. But I, also, I don't know what the rest of you think. I think it would be very unlikely that in the near future anybody is seriously going to suggest repeating this sort of exercise. Um, my hope is that, as you were suggesting, in the next, in the next election, um, the enrolments that this has led to will actually boomerang on the people who gave us the poll in the first place. Well, it's a high enough number that yes. if those numbers fell in the right spots, then it really would. Ro, do you have a, an opinion on, on the... Comp on the comp well, uh, just this, I'll... I'll um I'll stay out of the politics of it, but let's never do a, a, a public opinion poll on the human rights of a minority group ever again, like whether it's LGBTI or anybody else. Let's just never do that again. No. Do you, your, <laughs> yeah, yeah, politics. It's such a pain, isn't it? Politics, yeah. I, I don't understand it. I don't <laughs> understand it. Um, uh, look, uh, precisely, I mean, we went to Canberra. It would have been... Last year, in November 22nd, 500 religious leaders wrote this um, document appealing to the Prime Minister, please, you know, um, allow... And it, from all religious denominations, one year ago. Was this for asylum seekers? No, or no, no, for um, marriage equal marriage. Yep. 
That's what we're yeah. talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. And, you know, a year on, we did not have any response, um, $100 million wasted. Um, so politics, me, when I just think of it, I get a migraine, you know. Um, so it is... Uh, we did not have any response. It was religious leaders from all around Australia, 500 signatures. We appealed to him, please. We went to the Parliament House in Canberra. Um, no answer. And this is... Um, so, yes, yes. Politics, I think I will leave it to the experts. I'm not an expert. Yes, no. um, it, if anybody would like to ask a question, we have plenty of time. Um, so put your hand up and uh, and we'll get to you. I've got plenty more. Is that a... Um, I was listening to an interview with Tim Flannery. Speak into the mic. Sorry, I was listening to an interview with Tim Flannery and he uh, he's a big proponent of what he calls citizen juries. So rather than politicians making decisions, he thinks that um, questions should be put to the public. Um, I suppose his focus is obviously climate change uh, and I, I don't think he's suggesting that it would be about the human rights of anyone in relation to climate change but I wonder what you think about uh, more direct democracy uh, now that we've established some kind of basis for it. Look, I th- I'm very sceptical. I know there are various people now talking about various forms of direct democracy. I think it probably works at a local level around very specific concrete issues. And I, but I'm with Sally. I mean, I think the, the comparison of the Victorian debate on the right to die with the fact that we've had this very complex, long, wasteful process that actually has not resolved the issue at all. It still has to go to the parliament. Um, I'm worried when people like Noor say you're going to leave it to the experts uh, because, in a sense, in a democracy, everybody is an expert. But I think we also know that if you want to have a debate about complex issues that affect the entire nation... You can't really involve 24 million people directly. So while I think, as I say, direct democracy would work at local level around local issues, I'm not convinced that it is better than the current system. And I'm perfectly prepared to acknowledge all the faults of the current system. But, you know, if we look globally, the current system here is still preferable to most of the other models on offer. My view is, is very much we vote them in, they should do their job, but we need some more transparency about who we're voting in. I'd like to see questionnaires filled in and put on their websites about what they, you know, do they believe in climate change? What's their view on this? What's their view on that? What's their view on this? What's their, how would they vote on this and that? And I also think that um, it's time that, you know, all, the, all of these federal politicians said, well, I'll wait and see what my electorate thinks and how they vote. Well, why don't you go out and do your own polling, and, and vote according to your electorate on all sorts of issues. Um, I think that's more, more um, credible. Otherwise, we're going to have so many different layers of democracy. I think, fundamentally, the system that we've got works, um, but we need a lot, of more, a lot more transparency about who we, are, who we are voting in and what they believe. I, I just would like to add, because I, I share with Dennis, I don't, I'm not interested in civic... Um, 
what, do, what are they called, civic juries. Um, but I also don't think it's working at the moment like it's meant to. Our parliaments are meant to be the civic juries. And if they were representative, even mildly representative, uh, then we wouldn't need to ask this question. I feel really strongly about, about that one. This, um, ple- oh, I shouldn't say a plebiscite, this survey um, stirred up public debate. Um, do you think in the longer run this public debate that we've had um, has created a more informed public on the issue of same-sex attracted people in society um, and the history and the plight of LGBT, the LGBTI community? I think, I think the No campaign actually was very successful. So I think, uh, I, think the, I think the people that voted yes already supported us, uh, to be honest. I don't think we would have converted many into awareness and awakening. That's my personal view, and I'd like to... I really hope I'm wrong. But having had a woman in her 60s, lovely woman, come up to me almost looking for absolution because she said, Commissioner, I voted no... You know, and told me all the reasons she voted no. But you know, I, I'm not homophobic. You know, I just, I'm just. That wasn't what the question was about. You know, I'm saying, well, actually, yes, that was what the question was about. But anyway, she's put a no vote in. Those, those people, I think, believed a lot of the nonsense in the campaign. And I think we've we've got to continue to work to, to, um, to show them that our love is equal and that the sky will not fall down. Uh, because we have marriage equality, and I think that's going to be an ongoing, you know, and we're going to have the same divorce rate, probably. We're going to be exactly the same, you know. We're not going to have more babies or less babies or better holidays or, you know, all that stuff is just going to all be pretty normal, um, you know, like their relationships. And I think over time people will see that, you know, that, uh, that the quality is good. Um, look, I think... I, firstly, I disagree with Roe because I think that, in fact, um, the Yes campaign did, in, did probably change a number of positions. I'm not sure that the campaign itself, while I have great respect and admiration of the people who ran it, I'm not sure that the campaign itself did it as much as the way that it opened up a whole set of conversations. But I think that if one... Boils it, takes it down to the level of individuals. There were clearly a large number of LGBT people who, whether they wanted to or not, found themselves having difficult and often painful discussions with their families. And that, I think, was enormously important. I don't think this was the right way to bring about those conversations. But I think that the impact of those conversations was enormously important. And, you know, I go back to... Um, as Ro and I were on Joy last night. I've done a few programmes on Joy FM around marriage and talking with people who, who would talk about the, the real pain of having to confront parents, relatives, workmates. But also, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes the possibility to do it because the issue had opened up space. 
So, you know, again, don't get me wrong, I'm not defending the process, but I think there are a lot of good things that came out of this process. And while it was very painful, I think probably there are thousands of people around the country who, because of this process, have actually been able to have discussions that they haven't been able to have up till now. I mean, I'd be curious whether you've seen this in your community. I have seen it since I started the group, um, and this just expanded the wound. Um, and when it comes to um, opening this topic, I think we have met two years ago yes. in Pitt Street Uniting Church addressing, and we have met also um, two years ago. I have talked about issues of youth homelessness, um, youth mental health, youth um, addiction issues, self-harm, etc., etc., um, and this issue has just, you know, when you try, there's an Arabic saying that goes like this. Um, it says, How can a building ever be constructed? How can a building ever be constructed? If you put one brick and you go get to get, get, to go get the other brick, but someone comes behind you and demolishes whatever you have put. And this is what this process has done. Um, Yes. So, so I, don't, I half agree with Dennis. I think some of, some of the conversations have been productive. I suppose what I'm hearing more is the conversations... I mean, we're going into a Christmas now with families of yes and no voters where these conversations have been really difficult. And people are really angry that they've had to have these conversations or now they know how their family voted because their family told them and now they've got to go have Christmas with them. Uh, and they're really angry at the government for, have, for that. So, so, but then there's other conversations. You hear other terrific stories where people and families were supportive. I'll tell you one just quick gorgeous story because uh, I don't want to sound completely sad about it all. But um, there's a young, um, young Jewish guy that works for me at the department. And he thought he was going home for a family meeting about, you know, a new business. And he walked in the door. This is in the, basically right in the smack bang in the middle of the campaign. He walked into the family home. He's moved out, so he walked back in the family home. There's his mum, his dad, his brothers, all the people from the synagogue that he knows, his cousins, his aunt, his uncles, and it's a yes party, telephone dialing, you know, session. They're running out of their house and they've baked yes cookies and the whole lot. Now, you know, how overwhelming for him, how fantastic. But he came back and told people at the office who were very excited for him and then very sad about their own family experience. So... Why it's been a joyous time for some, it's been an absolutely horrific time for some. And I fundamentally believe you come out when you want to come out and nobody forces you to come out. And unfortunately, this postal survey has forced, or people have felt forced, to come out about their sexuality. And they've been pressured to do that by, the, by LGBTI and allies who know their sexuality or gender identity to come out as well. And that's been an incredibly painful thing when people have not been ready to do that and... The, impact, the mental health impacts of that, we're going to feel for a number and number of years after this. So there's great stories. I mean, bear in mind the process should never have happened, but there's some great stories. But there are also some horrible stories that um, you know, we've, got to, we've got to own those as well. well. I think we'd agree. I mean, I would just say that... Are we in furious agreement, we're, Dennis? Well, we are in agreement, but I'm going to say that there is also a mental health cost to not coming out. So while I totally agree with you that, yes... This process forced it on people in ways that was often very unfair, unreasonable. We do need to think of how not coming out, 
becomes also a burden that many people carry with them for a very long time. And it may well be, you know, I'm being relentlessly optimistic. Uh, We don't disagree. We all, I think, up here agree the process was fucked. It shouldn't have happened. But it did happen. And I suspect that it has changed the lives of a lot of people both for both better and worse. My hope is that for some of the people who are feeling the pain Rose talking about, in the medium to long term, it will actually turn out to also be for the best. There's no doubt that this has changed lives. Has it significantly changed our culture? Is there something in the, in the, in the ether, a, a, a significant change... Nord? Yep. I am looking at history, and you were saying, what are the lateral effects of this? I mean, I'm old now, fairly old, and when I was young, uh, it was frowned upon to sleep with your boyfriend. If you got pregnant, you were packed off to a home somewhere and treated like a very dirty person and if you got divorced it was a it was an absolutely major um, social problem and we've seen all that change so if we're patient surely I mean that's in the last 75 years that I've been alive we've gone from terrible cruelty to acceptance in those things surely now we'll move on to um a more tolerant thing and we have to be patient while it happens. But surely this is the beginning of more lateral things happening. I think it is. I think it is. I think we'll see progressive change get, get progressively faster. Uh, and, and that's great. And there's, you know, as I often say, there's an authorising environment to be a bit more progressive now. So I, I suspect, like other countries that have had marriage equality and the earth hasn't crumbled and the sky hasn't fallen. They've actually put a number of legislation things through to assist human rights. So I think the window's open and we've got to charge through it. You know, I'm sitting here, we were talking earlier about, uh, Commissioner mentioned, you know, one must, in my community, we have a lot of respect for elders, you know. Um, it is like the respect you give to God. And I'm sitting here furious full of anger, full of rage, and I'm trying to contain myself. So I'm moving like this. So if you, because, you know, it is outstanding, outstanding. Um, Commissioner, two years ago we have met, you know, um, Professor Dennis, we met at Pitt Street Uniting Church. We talked about asylum seekers. We talked about the question was Pitt Street Uniting Church. It was um, the topic with Professor Gillian Triggs. The question was, asylum seekers and can Australia do more? The hypocrisy of our leadership is outstanding, I think. Outstanding. And that's what's the obstacle. Hence me mentioning the Gramsci um, uh, quote. So what needs to happen, my dear um, brothers and sisters and elders and respected elders, you know, we have a, um, a hurt community. How do we provide healing? And we cannot provide healing by making one group like this. I mean, a, res- a true effective leadership is one that unites people. 
And you know, I come from the Muslim leadership. I was one of the board of imams of Victoria. It has been an abysmal failure from 2001 when September 11 happened till 2007. And I broke out of that by choice because it was doing a lot of trauma to the young people. Now the same manifestation is happening, but different faces, you know, I think. Time for one more. My, my question goes to uh, what you've just talked about, NUR, in relation to healing. You know, we've seen huge spikes in our um, helplines. Um, we know that everyone in the queer community has been really impacted. And, and yet we hear the narrative now that says, well, you got 61 point however many percent, yes, and the legislation is inbound and it's all going to be fine after that, isn't it? Isn't it? I, my question is about healing. How do we heal ourselves? How do we heal our community? How do we heal, you know, small country towns who've been divided by this, essentially? How do we help people to bring their communities back together in what has, as, as I think was earlier predicted, to be an extremely divisive process? I think through collaboration... I mean, when I started Marhaba, Marhaba, initially when I chose the name, Marhaba in Arabic means welcome. I didn't want anything to do with religion, anything, because it did a lot of damage. But when we went through the process of um, funding and so forth, we said, they said, no, you are an ink, unincorporated. So some are welcome until you are ink, Marhaba ink. Now we are ink, incorporated. And, you know... Even within the, and you, you, I, I love you, Kay, you know, thank you so much, God bless you. I'm ever so grateful to both of you. But we are, it is about finding collaborations effectively within administrations, within community, and collaborate, oh, what happened? <laughs> within, you know, organizations. I, sometimes I do um, work, they call me at Alfred Hospital. Um, and I came up with an idea recently at the hospital. I said, let's do workshops um, about, you know, reconciling faith with uh, sexuality and just put stickers around. Not faith-based, non-denominational. And you should have seen the chapel. <laughs> it was full. It was like, you know, mass, Sunday mass. And people that had all these and, and physicians predominantly, healthcare workers. So the platform needs to be facilitated. And the platform, if it's going to be facilitated, it cannot be agenda-based, cannot be, you know. So I don't know. I mean, when I started Marhaba, my focus was to break away from the old way of thinking because I saw for six years the um, Muslim leadership, they were doing constantly the same thing, damage after damage after damage. So I said, look, no matter whatever the losses are, and I took risks to my life, to my daughter's life, to my family, but the issue was to be addressed, and thankfully it has saved lives, um, and it continues to do so. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, we have to wrap it up. Rose, off to another event. You must be a bit tired, yeah? It's just a dinner. Good. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, um, and I'm very grateful for the three of you, particularly, you know, not agreeing on everything, as you so often get when you put three people together in Melbourne. Um, and, <laughs> and you've been a, a wonderful audience too on this uh, 
stormy night in the wonderful uh, M Pavilion. So thank you, everybody, for coming and uh, get home safely in the rain. Mm -hmm.